0: Like I kissed Dating Goodbye and Boy Meets Girl. He was actually at one time a pastor of a Sovereign Grace church. He announced on Instagram a few weeks ago that he is not a Christian. And he said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And when smart people, and Josh is smart, and when popular people, Josh has had quite a following, when influential people, when, especially when church people like that, reject Jesus, I think it's possible for the thought to go through our minds, something like, does he know something I don't know? I think this is especially uh, close for me because for several years here at Sioux Falls Christian, I I taught a, a Bible class. We called it Discipleship, and I used Josh's book, Dug Down Deep. I love that book. There is incredible content in that book. And then I hear this, and I think, what? I mean, the whole book was about laying a foundation for your life on the truth of God's word because that foundation can't be shaken. John wrote the passage that we're going to look at this morning in order to convince you to believe in spite of the unbelief of others. John wrote this passage to convince you to believe in spite of, particularly, that's the situation he has in view, believe in spite of the unbelief of others and in spite of the fact that their unbelief may be incredibly emotionally and even intellectually persuasive to you because John is dealing with not just the unbelief of random others. I mean, it's one thing that there are unbelievers in the world, but in particular, when those others who don't believe are others whose opinion matters to you, because of their position, because of their influence, because of their popularity, maybe because of the effect that they've had on your life, when they don't believe, the ones that you particularly care about, maybe you've even followed them, when they don't believe, keep on believing. That's what John is getting at here. You see, John wrote this gospel. His first audience was Jews and converts to Judaism, and he's writing to convince Jewish people and converts to Judaism that the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited, anointed one that God would send, is Jesus. That's why he wrote this. He's writing to convince them. And in this passage, he, he finishes narrating hand-picked selections of signs that Jesus did. Seven signs from Jesus' public ministry. And now that he's done narrating those signs and he's transitioning to the last week of Jesus' life, he's going to deal with a major roadblock to faith for that Jewish audience in his day. Here it is. How could Jesus be the Messiah when all the religious leaders within Judaism, in Jerusalem, didn't think so? I mean, you would think they know something, right? These are the ones who have led us, taught us, influenced us. If anyone was devoutly waiting for the Messiah, it was these people, and they didn't think he was the Messiah. So how could he be? You feel how big a roadblock to faith that would be to the audience that John is is writing to? Is their unbelief a valid reason for our unbelief? I mean, if God is real and Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, then, then why don't these people believe? So what John, inspired by the Spirit, has given you in this passage today is, I think of this like a pathology of unbelief. Now, pathology has to do with understanding the behavior of a disease, its causes, its signs, its symptoms, its effects. John is unpacking a pathology of unbelief here. But, it, but it's more than just telling you so that you know about unbelief. This text is meant to help you understand unbelief in order to avoid it and overcome it, not succumb to it. So let's give our attention to John chapter 12, verse 36. We're going to read through 43. We're going to begin in the middle of 36, kind of 36B. This is God's word, His voice. Living and active. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you are speaking to us. We know that you're speaking to us through your word. There's there's nothing like it in all the earth. Your voice, your words that are true and pure, like refined, purified gold with no dross, no impurities, no imperfections. Your word revives our hearts. Your word makes wise the simple. Thank you for your word that deals honestly with painful realities of this world, like unbelief. and Thank you for the grace that you mean to give us through this word. Do that now. May all of your grace abound to us and for us, for your glory, for our joy. Amen. So when you open scripture, God's grace comes to you from God through the words that he inspired here. Do you know that? That that should be your expectation and your hope every time you open the pages of Scripture. Grace is coming to me. That's what you should expect. And it leads us to ask the question every time we open the Word of God, what grace is God giving me here? What grace does God give you through this text? And I believe that through these words, the Holy Spirit intends to strengthen your faith in Jesus by overcoming any hint of unbelief in you. So as I mentioned, John's writing to a particular audience and to win an argument, not only do you have to make your case in a compelling way with compelling evidence for your side, oftentimes you have to respond to objections and questions and arguments that come from the other side. So there's always this kind of a two-pronged focus when you're trying to prove something to people. John has set out convincing Proofs that Jesus is the Christ, and now he's seeking to remove this hindrance. What do you do when smart and influential people reject Jesus? I want to give you three ways to respond to unbelief according to John 12. Believe, beware, behold. Those are the three things I see in this text. Believe, beware, and behold. When others disbelieve, Believe. That's the first thing this text calls you to do. Let me ask you this. Do you ever find yourself thinking or assuming unbelief toward God, unbelief in Jesus is normal? Like that's the status quo? That's the given in the world? You just kind of come to expect unbelief? Or do you find yourself kind of thinking, man, my faith in Jesus just stands out like a sore thumb. It's just kind of weird in the, the culture, the world that I live in, faith in Jesus. I mean, it comes across as strange to others. Do, do people see me as kind of like a tinfoil hat wearing, you know, science denying, conspiracy believing, flat earth lunatic? That, that's how faith often looks to the culture. I think a lot of people in our day think of faith the way Archie Bunker did, you know, in that 1970s TV show, All in the Family. Archie Bunker said, faith is something that you believe that nobody in his right mind would believe. Faith is something that you believe that no one in his right mind would believe, I and mean, you have to be crazy to believe, right? From that angle, the perspective is, faith is irrational. Faith is anti-reason. It's anti-science. I'm sorry. Shannon, can you tell me if Barbara's okay? Can you, can you just check on Barbara and let me know? I'm going to carry on. I think what God is telling us through John here is that what's irrational is actually unbelief. When when the world around us thinks belief is irrational, people believe without any reason, as a blind leap of faith, John is telling you, actually, unbelief is irrational. I think she's okay. I don't want you to worry. <laughs> um, just my worst fear, <laughs> Shannon. What's that? Okay. All right. So what I'm trying to say here, (laughs) the world sees faith as irrational. John actually holds out the irrationality of unbelief. Unbelief is unreasonable. Unbelief is unfounded. It's unbelief that is in spite of all of the evidence and all of the reasons. John is telling us no one in his right mind would reject Jesus. Look at verse 37. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, right in front of their eyes, they still did not believe in him. So so the construction of that sentence is meant to pack emotional punch. The, The sentence is communicating a contrast between reality, Jesus did so many signs right in front of their eyes. That's the reality. And then here is the surprising, unexpected, head-scratching response from the Jews. They still did not believe. That is irrational. That is shocking because their unbelief is in spite of the evidence. Jesus gave them every possible reason to believe in what John has done in his record of Jesus' life. He's hand-picked these seven signs. Remember, he turned water into wine, and he healed the official son, and then he healed that paralytic at Bethesda, and then he fed the 5,000, and then he walked on water, and then he healed a man blind from birth and raised Lazarus from the dead. And John picked these seven signs to give you a glimpse of Jesus, and these signs that are pointing you to the reality. He is the Son of God, the anointed One the Christ. And John is aware of how inadequate this record is, that he ends up telling us at the end, he gives us this disclaimer, the very last words in the Gospel of John, John 21, 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I have not even begun to scratch the surface of what Jesus did to prove that he is who he said he was. When John says that the Jews did not believe in Jesus even though he had done so many signs, he he wants you to feel shocked at their unbelief. That's the surprising thing in the world. Unbelief is the surprising thing in the world. And and you know that feeling you get? Like if you play sports, you can relate to this. When a ref just really botches a call, I mean, we, we get it. They're human, right? But like when it's so obvious that no one in his right mind would make that call, and, and it's especially like the timing is such that it costs you the game. If you've played sports, you know this has happened to you at least once, but probably like a hundred times. And that feeling of injustice that you have, how could that be? You feel this injustice or, or maybe a more weighty thing. Maybe some of you watch the Netflix series When They See Us about the Central Park Five. You learn about these five teenage boys who spent, most of them five or six years, one of them 12 years in prison for a crime, they didn't commit. They didn't. It's not like a question, maybe they, they didn't do it, and they all spent time in jail. If, if you watch that, you, you, you know that feeling you get? Just like you get angry, and that's wrong, and you're just bewildered by it, and confused, and shocked. That's the kind of feeling John means to communicate here. That's what unbelief should make us feel. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. And what effect should that have on you? It means you should never be intimidated by unbelief. Don't be intimidated by it. And don't be persuaded by those who are wise and powerful in the world who reject Jesus. Let them scoff at your simple minded, humble reliance on Jesus and submission. To Jesus. As for you, you can stand completely assured that unbelief toward Jesus is always the wrong response to Jesus. Or to say it another way, belief is the only right response. Belief is the only right response to Jesus. And that's the question we should be asking ourselves all the time when we come to His Word. Do I believe it? Not, how do I feel? Do I believe it? And the answer is made for you. God is true. God is right. God is faithful. So anything other than trusting him is calling him a liar. So believe. Believe what he says. There is no excuse for unbelief. So Paul writes in Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to them, to everyone, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I mean, Scripture is crystal clear. No one has any valid excuse for failing to worship God, failing to honor God, failing to give thanks to God. Even the fact that people say, but I just don't feel like it. I don't want to. I love my sin. They just, think about this. If you were to stand before a judge, let's say that you were clocked going 90 in a school zone, and you say to the judge, I saw the sign. I just didn't feel like obeying it. Your desire or lack of desire is not an excuse, is it? So don't use it as an excuse. There is no excuse. God has clearly posted all of these signs, all of these reasons it's beyond our scope here to go into all of them. That's not my point today. I just want to strengthen your faith that you know God has made these things clear. They are clear. Everyone sees them. Everyone who rejects God does so in spite of what God has made known about himself in the world and in the person and work of Jesus. So trust him. When others disbelieve, what should you do? Keep believing. Keep believing with full confidence, knowing unbelief is what's crazy and irrational. And if you detect the faintest hint of unbelief in your own heart, repent and believe and do it quickly. Unbelief is not your friend, it's not helpful, it's not cute, it is sin against God. And so, no matter how you feel, turn and believe because there's no excuse for unbelief. Second, beware. Let the unbelief of others serve as a warning that gets your attention so that you believe. Beware. Let the unbelief of others serve as a sober warning to you. John 12 shows us that part of God's just judgment against sin includes this work of God in which He blinds the eyes of unbelievers and hardens their hearts. That is sobering. Look at verse 39. John says about these Jews, therefore they could not believe. They could not believe. Remember, John's explaining why it is that so many Jews who were so eagerly waiting for the Messiah rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and his point is so that no one else will take their unbelief as an excuse for unbelief. So how does he explain their unbelief? Well, he's already made it clear. They're at fault. They are responsible for their unbelief. There is human responsibility in this because there's no excuse. God has made it clear. There is human responsibility, and they are guilty of unbelief. And then he peels the curtain back even more so that you can see you don't even have to be discouraged by their unbelief for which they're responsible because God is up to something in this. There is actually a divine purpose, a divine cause behind this unbelief. And he shows you this by quoting from Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10. He says, for again, Isaiah said, he, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So you might read that, and your first reaction may be, this is normal, how is that fair? How is that just? Doesn't God want people to be saved? Why would he harden? Why would he blind any? Why would God do that? Loved ones, this is the sober warning. This hardening work of God, this blinding work of God, is his fair, just judgment against sin. John's quoting Isaiah, and in that context, Isaiah has just had this glorious throne room vision the glory of the Lord, high and exalted, sitting on a throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. The temple is shaking. The foundation of the threshold is shaking and it's filled with smoke and the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in response to that, John has his sins forgiven. As he confesses, I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips and God forgives and atones for his sin. And then he hears God saying, who will go for us and whom will we send? And John, or Isaiah says, send me, I will go. And God sends Isaiah to the people of Israel, the people of unclean lips. And what is the message that God gives him? That their hearts are going to be hardened and their eyes are going to be blinded. It's a message of judgment. It's a judicial hardening. It's not the only thing God does. Isaiah 65, 2 God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. I mean, to be clear, they are following their own devices. They do this willfully, they do this willingly, they, they love their sin. God's judicial hardening, when he hardens it as judgment, it is not a threat to his justice. It is his justice. It doesn't compromise his goodness, it's an expression of his perfect holiness. God's just judgment against sin involves leaving people in their sin. Romans 1, again, 24 and 26 and 28. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God hands people over, and to be living in your sin is to be living under the wrath of God now. God's full wrath is coming at the day of judgment, but God gives people over even now. So don't get the wrong idea. When John says they could not believe, it, it, this is not a situation of people who are like, please, we just want to believe, and God is saying, No not you. There's there's no inclination. These are not morally neutral people. These are not morally good people. They could not because they would not. I think Genesis 37.4 is one of the clearest things where you see these two go together. When when Genesis says about Joseph's brothers, they hated Joseph and they could not speak peacefully to him. Not because shalom was not in their vocabulary. It wasn't that they, they didn't know how to make the words with their mouths and their vocal cords and say something nice to him. They couldn't say anything nice to him because they hated him. What John makes clear, we have seen this again and again and again throughout this gospel, it is not in their nature to believe. It's not in anyone's nature to believe. It's not in your nature to believe that's why John three seven you must be born again, or John eight forty seven. Whoever's of God hears the words of God, but the reason you don't hear is because that you're not of God. Or John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So beware, watch out for unbelief in your own heart. Don't make peace with it. Don't think, well, I'll just sit here for a while and wallow in my unbelief because it kind of feels good. It's a sobering thing to know that God's judgment against unbelief is to harden hearts. Hearts grow hard. That's the picture Hebrews 3 paints. Watch out. Sin is so deceitful and it has this hardening effect like wet cement drying Get out. If you see any hint of unbelief in your heart, turn and flee to Jesus. Or as the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Unbelief is never an excuse. Nobody gets to say, well, God has hardened my heart. I I can't. No, God calls you to account. And the way that he softens hearts is through the preaching of his word. So check your heart frequently. Are you easily edified? Are you responsive to his word? Don't be okay with sitting under his word, opening his word, reading his word, and remaining apathetic to it. Don't tolerate sin and unbelief and dullness of heart and apathy and lack of affection for God, lest you fall under his wrath and he leave you in your hardness of heart. Believe, beware, Finally, behold. Unbelief is an obvious theme in this section, verses 36 through 43, but it is merely the black backdrop against which the glory of God's grace shines brilliantly. The unbelief of these Jews in Jesus' day is just a backdrop against which God is magnifying the glory of His grace. That's why this text ultimately calls you to behold, to see the glory of God and to worship. This text calls you to respond to unbelief by worshiping because unbelief actually magnifies the glory of Jesus. After quoting Isaiah twice, John says here in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Think about that for just a second. Isaiah said these things about hardness of heart, and blindness, and unbelief, and rejection of God's anointed one. He said these things because Isaiah was seeing glory. So this text is about those who don't see, but it's actually about what they don't see. They don't see glory. And so this text is about you seeing the glory of Jesus. Just like faith, unbelief always has an object. You, you, you are an unbeliever towards something, right? You may be in unbeliever as regards Bigfoot or unicorns or leprechauns. Unbelief is toward something. It has an object. Faith has an object. Isaiah saw something. He saw glory. So what's the glory that he's talking about? The glory toward which Isaiah foretold people would be blind. Well, the the most obvious answer would be Isaiah 6, The throne room vision, the train of the robe filling the temple, the thresholds shaking, that is glory. John also quotes from Isaiah 53, but that passage is where he's talking about the suffering servant. And Isaiah says there, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So it seems like that would not be the candidate, right? That suffering servant in Isaiah 53, there's no beauty, there's no majesty, there's nothing about him that we would desire him, doesn't seem to be any glory there. So the glory Isaiah saw must refer to that throne room glory, right? Not so fast. The parallels between Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 are striking. In Isaiah 6, 1, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. But in Isaiah 53, right at the end of 52, God tells Isaiah about this suffering servant, my servant shall be high and lifted up. The suffering servant, the same words as God on his throne in the temple. Isaiah 6, 3, the seraphim are crying out, the whole earth is full of glory. Isaiah 52, 13, in the Greek that John is quoting, it says, my servant shall be Glorified. In God's throne room, that's where Isaiah's guilt was removed, his sin was atoned for. Listen to what Isaiah 53:12 says about the suffering servant. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So you take these two visions that Isaiah had, that John quotes, you put them next to each other, and you see. It's not two different glories. It's one and the same glory. It's this glorious, exalted throne room vision displayed in the most surprising way through the servant of God who laid down his life and died for sinners. He laid down his life to show us that glory. When he dies for sinners, he displays that glory, the glory that Isaiah saw in the throne room is the same glory as the glory of the suffering servant. And both glories are just one glory, namely the glory of God in Jesus. That's where all of that comes true in space and time. And here's what that means, that his glory, the glory of God in Jesus, is actually the glory of his grace. This glory that the high and exalted one would stoop so low as to take on humanity Not just human nature, but the weight and the filth and the guilt of human sin in order to reconcile sinners to himself. That is his glory on display. The cross was not just a step toward glory for Jesus. It was the display of his glory. It's how he made it possible for you to enjoy the glory of God forever. That's what Isaiah saw. That's what's on display for you today in the person and the work of Jesus. In fact, God's glorious purpose for the unbelief of the Jews who are alive in Jesus' day is to display His grace toward you. John writes in verses 37 and 38, They still did not believe in Jesus so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he he quotes Isaiah 53, 1. Think about that for a second. They did not believe so that, in order that, that's a purpose phrase, in order that God's word might be fulfilled. This means their unbelief was actually a necessary part of God's plan of redemption. God didn't just foresee that they would disbelieve, God planned it without intending evil God planned it for glorious and good purposes. Some of us have been thinking about this and talking about this throughout the Gospel of John. God had a plan to send His Son to die for the sins of the world, but the most perplexing question in all of that is, how does He get killed? Somehow getting killed has to happen, and other people are going to do it. So God planned for His Son to come and die, and He planned that this generation that their hearts, he would harden their hearts so that they would reject Jesus and kill him. The purpose of God in saving you is unfolding through this unbelief. So what God ordains, he always does for good purposes. I, I, I go back to Joseph and his brothers all the time. There's such a clear example when Joseph says to them, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You meant evil. You, were, you had an evil purpose in mind. You wanted to hurt me and ruin my life. God also meant something in your selling me into slavery, except what he meant was not evil at all. It was good and wise and fair and glorious to save the world from famine. The Jews meant to kill Jesus, and they meant to kill him for evil reasons. God meant for his sinless son to die And he meant it to be the once and for all, sin-atoning, wrath-absorbing sacrifice that would cancel your debt against him. And that should increase our worship. God hardened the hearts of these people in order to provide his son as a sacrifice for the sins of those who were not yet his people. John's explaining, he's accounting for the the rejection of this generation of Jews, and he's showing you this is not outside the plan of God. It's not evidence to reject Jesus. This is actually part of God's plan that led to the death of the Son of God and accomplished the salvation of the world. And so their unbelief led to Jesus' death for you. And in God's providence, their rejection of the gospel led to the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentile world. So, Paul quotes that same passage in Isaiah about God hardening their hearts when he turns with the gospel to the Gentile world, and you realize there are churches in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in 2019, people worshiping Jesus today because of that, the gospel spreading to the Gentile world, that intensifies our worship when we realize God in his greatness will be worshiped by as many people as possible with as much intensity as possible. And the way he does that is by worshiping people who know they are not saved by any works they do, but by his grace. Listen to Paul in Romans 11. If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And then he says in verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. By hardening the hearts of his people, God is showing it's not by your ethnicity, It's not by your religious performance. It's not by anything in you. No one will climb their way to God. No one will work their way so that God owes them something. The only way anyone is saved, Jew or Gentile, is by sheer grace, pure mercy. And that causes us to worship when we just consider, why do I see? Why do I see it all? If if this is fair for God to leave people in their sin, to harden their hearts, to blind their eyes, well, if I see, then it can't be because I was more deserving. It can't be because I'm smarter. This is why we just worship in response. We see other people who disbelieve. The, the way that we worship is not a gloating or rejoicing in their unbelief. It's just this humble sense of I would not believe. If you had not acted toward me in such a merciful way, opened my eyes and caused me to see. So there should never be the faintest hint of pride or arrogance. That person, that's dumb that they don't believe. I'm so smart that I believe. No, all of us would not believe, but God has so worked redemptive history that all who do believe will believe in such a way that they just rejoice in the glory of his mercy and they know i didn't deserve this i didn't deserve this at all and we pray like paul says in romans 9:18 we just marvel we wonder so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills if you believe it's because god overcame the hardness of your heart by his sovereign grace because it pleased him to have mercy on you. That should intensify your worship. This text is all about worship. Look at verse 42. Many of the authorities believed, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. John continues in verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Misplaced worship is the root of all unbelief. And that means true worship is the remedy. Always. Always. There there are two motivators here, Paul points to, or John points to fear and love. And that's really just one thing. That's just worship. Fear and love are worship words. Deuteronomy 6 5, God commands his people, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. A few verses later, he says, It is the Lord your God, you shall fear. Those are just ways of calling people worship God. You love him only. You fear him only. These are worship words. Why did people who even kind of liked Jesus and were kind of interested in Jesus, why did they not confess? For fear and for love. They feared something else more than God. They loved something else more than God. In fact, one way you can tell what you love the most is by asking yourself, what do I fear losing the most? the Jews who liked Jesus, they were sympathetic toward him. There were Jews who hated him outright and called for his crucifixion. The, the sobering thing to me in all of this is that these were religious people who loved looking good in front of other people. You think, is it such a bad thing to want to be liked by people? It is the sin that led to the crucifixion of the Son of God. That, that's how pernicious, that's how dangerous self-righteousness is. Everyone who says, I refuse to come to God on his terms, I refuse to come to him as the one in need, I will come to him by my own strength, I will be good enough for God, that's the sin that led to the murder of the Son of God. That's what they love, the glory that comes from man, the praise of man. They did not love having God's approval, which can only be done through Jesus who had to die to purchase it for us. So this passage leaves you with, I think, one ultimate question. What is it that you love the most? What do you love the most? What does your heart desire the most? What do you delight in the most? That's the root of it all for every single one of us. What do you love the most? In his book, You Are What You Love, James K. Smith, he he talks about this film I've I've never seen. It's a a Russian sci-fi thriller called Stalker. And as I understand it, he, there are three travelers who are on their way to a place called The Zone, and inside The Zone, there is The Room. And the thing about The Room that draws people is that when you enter the room, the room gives you exactly what you want the most, your heart's desire. And so when they get there, you would think, I mean, what, a, what an opportunity. Go in the room, right? And suddenly they pause because they're confronted with this question what do I really want the most? What is the deepest desire of my heart? What what would you get if you stepped inside that room? Would you step inside the room? I mean, we all know what we ought to desire the most. We should love the glory of God the most. We should desire Jesus the most. But would you step in the room? We need God's mercy to increase our desire for him, our delight in him. It's only by grace that those who are blind come to see the glory of God in the crucified Savior. And so all of this that happened to these Jews in in Jesus' day is recorded for you as grace to you, as a tender, merciful reminder from God. Beware of that sinful, self-reliant unbelief. Believe in Jesus alone alone. For the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of every promise that God makes to you, and behold the glory of His grace and delight in Him. Let's pray. Father, we cast ourselves. Upon your mercy, for it is great. You have mercy on whom you have mercy, and you harden whom you harden. And that does leave us with a sense of helplessness that feels terrifying. There's there's nothing we can do to merit or deserve this. But it's as we meditate on it that we just we just marvel, we just wonder, we are so amazed that it would please you to save us. Thank you. What can we say to you but thank you? And the fact that you would plan history, redemptive history in such a way that it was through the unbelief of some that the Son of God would be sacrificed for the world and the gospel would be preached and yet one day you're going to save many from the Jews. We just marvel. You will be praised by multitudes who will be passionate about your mercy. God, forgive us for our apathy toward this glorious grace you have shown us in Jesus as if we just go along doing our thing and deserving this grace because it's just what you owe us and Oh God, may our delight, may our awareness of your grace grow deeper as we consider unbelief around us. And God, would it please you to save many more from the darkness, opening their eyes to see. Thank you that you do that. You do that saving work too, in addition to your strange work of hardening the hearts of some. Oh God, get worship for yourself by saving those who could never deserve it through Jesus who died, that we might love you and know you forever.